Good morning. I'm Wimala, and today is Thursday, February 10th, and we have a gray overcast, not that all that cold, but just a gray day today. So I'm glad parts of yesterday and the day before were sunny. And these are the these are more challenging days, uh, just because the sun the sun makes such a big difference. I think in these cold climates, but uh, that's good. We have a challenge for the day. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And today we're reading. Uh, we I don't think we'll read the whole thing. Maybe half. Maybe the whole chapter. The last chapter in Wisdom is Bliss by Robert Thurman. And I hope if you've enjoyed it that you get the, the uh, audio book or the book because it's a, it's a wonderful book. So this is chapter 10. I'll start with this. It's called Sharing My Consolation Prize. So he's doing a real quick summary of the book and then he's doing... He's giving his uh, personal viewpoints about his own uh, life as a Buddhist and his own practice. Sharing my consolation prize. Well then, we have gone through the entirety of the Four Noble Truths, or as I call them, the Four Friendly Facts. The first of the four was the diagnosis. Buddha says, if you're not enlightened, That means you don't know what you are, and you don't know what the world you're in is really a a lot, is really like, is really about. Therefore, you're going to have a frustrating time because you're going to be wandering like a blind person on the freeway. This is if you're not enlightened. That's not even a genius statement. It's an obvious statement. If you don't know what's going on, you're going to have a hard time. It's very simple. Although he said it's a fact for a noble, truly friendly person. He had a special definition of noble. Noble means someone who has a degree of altruistic perception, not just a moralistic attitude about altruism, and who therefore perceives the life pulse of others as equal to their own in importance and in reality, and who therefore is truly friendly with other beings. That's just a major theme through this entire book, and he can't stress it enough. A noble, his definition of noble, means someone who has a degree of altruistic perception, not just a moralistic attitude about altruism, and who therefore perceives the life pulse of others is equal to their own in importance and in reality, and who therefore is truly friendly with other beings. The second truth stems from the fact that most people are not going to agree that ordinary life is suffering They have moments of relief. They have moments of pleasure and pain. It's not all suffering, so they won't agree with that. So it's not a fact for them. The second truth is that there's a cause of that unenlightenment. 
What's the cause? The cough is self-centeredness. Not that people are immoral. It isn't that. They can be quite moral by following rules. It's that the unenlightened person thinks, I'm the one. Like Neo in the Matrix, many of us here might be thinking that. Each person is the main person in their own life, right? Don't we think that? At least we think we're supposed to look out for number one. Be responsible, whatever. We make ourselves separate from others, and we crave for things to be a certain way, and this separates us further into an unrealistic state Of alien, and this separates us further into an unrealistic state of alienation because we are quickly, because we quickly notice that other people don't normally think we're the one, except maybe mom or dad, or maybe, perhaps temporarily, someone who is in love with us. Then Buddha gave a very hopeful and very surprising prognosis. The third noble truth. Nobody believes it, really. It's the prognosis that you can be free of suffering. Really free of suffering, not just enjoying temporary relief. A bit of pleasure that won't last from some external event or some success or the acquisition of something or a nice relationship. But that, just from within, from knowing your own true nature, you can have perfect freedom from suffering. He taught that, and he manifested it himself, and many people realized it in his own time. Subsequently, many people have realized that, and probably some of you have realized that. The prognosis is very, very good. You're taught in our somewhat constricted culture and somewhat material. Mater- militaristic, <laughs> it's also materialistic, but this our somewhat militaristic society coming from a Euro-American colonial, colonialist past, that you're hardwired and there's nothing you can do about it. The way the Buddhist inner scientist understands your humanity, however, is that you are not very hardwired at all. The Buddhist view is that any human being is completely malleable in their wiring. Any human being can become a saint and very easygoing, and any human being can become quite evil and very, very difficult if they go on the dark side, and all degrees in between. Actually, every human being is constantly changing all the time. If you don't become more conscious about how you change and what changes things and what influences you, and you do not choose what you allow to influence you by using your intelligent discrimination, then you will probably be changed for the worse. This is why we have the fourth truth, and that's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is like a whole curriculum of a university. It should be the core curriculum of all our liberal educating universities, 100%. The first path asks, what is real versus what is unreal? 
that's right, we call sometimes right understanding. What is real versus what is unreal. This is what we refer to as realistic worldview. Are you just a brain being carried around on top of a skeleton in between Halloweens rattling around in there? hopefully producing a lot of dopamine to make you feel better without any malevolent drugs? Hopefully that's what you are, but are you that? Are you merely a brain? Is your life really meaningless ultimately? Does nobody really care about it? Should you therefore, realistically speaking, not really care about it, except for what you can get out of this or that pleasure? Do you have a purpose? How happy can you be? Even that's open to question. I think most people don't think they can really be that happy. They feel wisdom is a kind of resignation to carrying your misery with nobility. Just stagger around and have the occasional glass of wine. Even the idea of nirvana, that you can be perfectly happy, sure, give me a break. That's why Buddha was so smart. For less capable people, he was careful not to really say, Nirvana is bliss. He would just say that Nirvana is freedom from suffering. It's the end of suffering. He didn't really say bliss that much. Now and then, but not all the time. He just said end of suffering and let people think about what that might be probably knowing that the more psycho among them would just think it was annihilation, anesthesia, you know, that was more sensible to them. They would be less skeptical about that. Your realistic worldview is that you're here forever. This is the re- a realistic worldview. That is that you're here forever and you have to be concerned not just with your old age and your pension, You have to be concerned with your next life. The way to be concerned for your next life is to invest now in your mind and get your mind open and clear. That's the first thing. Once you have that realistic worldview, you realize you are a precious continuum of good energy. Still dragging along behind you some bad energy, And your job as a human is to take this unique opportunity to really increase the good exponentially and really decrease the bad just as exponentially. Then you have the realistic motivation. Sometimes people like to translate it as intention. I like motivation. So we'll call it the second noble truth is realistic motivation. So realistic motivation, once you have adopted compassionate commitment to causality, then your motivation is to associate yourself with all good causes and reduce connection to negative causes. You are an evolving being, and you should develop the motivation to use your time of being conscious so that you're motivated to always choose the positive, even if it's the tiniest little thing. And your motivation is to always choose the slight increment that's better, as opposed to the increment that's worse. 
I love that description of right motivation, even for the tiniest little thing. Choose the positive and choose the slight increment that's better as opposed to the increment that's worse. Then from realistic motivation, realistic speech is next. Speech should be only truthful. It should be only peacemaking. It should be only gentle and it should be only meaningful. Babbling meaninglessly or harshly or untruthfully or making people enemies with each other, thinking that you'll get a benefit out of that. Those kinds of speech are really negative actions and sadly very powerful. Next you have what's called realistic evolutionary action. Realistic karma doesn't just mean any act. It means an evolutionary act, an act you do with a certain intention. He talks in this book, he talks about evolutionary acts quite a bit in addition to this uh, part of the Eightfold Path. But it's, it's an act, it's an act you do with a certain intention. Because your mind is involved, it will change the shape of your life. What you do changes the way you are, and not just what you do physically. What you do verbally and what you do mentally will change the mode of your life. You want to do only that which will change your life and your mind for the better. What you discover with realistic evolutionary action is that the mind causes change, and therefore you have to gain leverage over your mind. You might think somebody was mean to me, and then you brood and brood, and then you can't get out of that cycle of brooding, which will lead to being depressed and freaked out. Instead, you feel there is a part of your mind that is brooding, and you tell it, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. They were unpleasant yesterday, but forget them. I'm going to have a happy time today. I'm going to do something else. You can switch. As I said before, it's like you get a clicker for your mind. Otherwise, you have to follow everywhere your mind leads you. You're just a victim of thoughts that are put in there by conditioning that you have no control over. So you're just a victim of your environment and you don't have any freedom in your mind. When your mind tells you, Oh, he said that to me. I have to get freaked out. Can you instead instead, sit back and say something else? Why should I do that? What good is that going to do? That's not going to help. Your more intelligent mind comes and intervenes, and you have a dialogue inside yourself. That's not a sign of dementia. That's a sign of waking up. It might be good news to a lot of us. <laughs> when our more, our more intelligent mind comes and intervenes and you have a dialogue inside yourself. That's a sign of waking up. Then there is, and we always talk about that at the end when we share merit. May everything we do, and that's our action, that's the evolutionary action, every intentional thing we do. 
We want it to be good for ourselves and good for all other beings. Then there is realistic livelihood. Number five, you shouldn't have a profession where you're doing something harmful to anybody else. You shouldn't work for companies that do harmful things to people. You should only have a livelihood that benefits people because you get an evolutionary impact from it. That's very important. The professions of weapon makers, butchers, alcohol distributors, and addictive drug pushers of various kinds are all strongly disrecommended. You can figure that out for yourself. That's realistic livelihood. Then six is realistic creativity. This is where you get out of your laziness. You become really creative when you realize that you have to do something about your life in your mind and that no one else can do it for you. I love that about Buddha. Buddha's like, oh wow, I'm enlightened, I'm so cool. I now I'm happy because I see you can become enlightened, but I can't make you enlightened. You have to understand your own state. You can do that. I see that, but you have to do it yourself. I can't understand yourself for you. You have to understand yourself. Faith alone will not make you enlightened. Understanding makes you enlightened. And you have to have that understanding. That's why Buddha's big job was to found a school, not really a religion, but a school. It's not just a school to enable you to have a profession and produce things. It's a school to make you evolve. You produce yourself in a future world, and you are able to do things for other beings and produce their happiness by being a loving being in both, in both this and the future world. That's what it's about, to really be competently a loving being. That's quite a task, and that's what you become when you become enlightened. So that's what we call right effort, um, and he calls it realistic creativity. I love it. Then there's realistic mindfulness. After creativity, mindfulness. Mindfulness means becoming self-aware in a different way. It doesn't just mean when you're meditating. It also means to be more self-conscious of yourself when you're interacting with people. Okay? It doesn't just mean when you're meditating. It also means to be more self-conscious of yourself when you're interacting with people. The groundwork of it is counting one to ten, counting your breath, looking there at yourself. The real groundwork is to become aware, to observe how your mind works inside and how your thoughts link together. And you find the gaps in those links and learn to interfere with the ones that are going in the wrong direction and to empower the ones that are going in the right direction. At first, you just want to see what's happening. That's realistic mindfulness. And this, for us, is a very, very important step. Pr the Practicing mindfulness 
mindfulness when we meditate and then taking that mindfulness into our everyday, every breath step, steps. That mindfulness is how we learn about our mind. It's, it's, it's one of the stages to get to what we would think of as becoming enlightened. So when he talks about uh, taking the ten breaths, the groundwork of it is counting one to ten, counting your breath, looking there at yourself. Because we see when the mind gets distracted. We see when we can't stay focused. And so we're seeing that all the time. And that's what how we grow from practicing mindfulness as a... Uh, a consistent part of our meditation practice. And finally, the last of them all is the true meditation, which is realistic samadhi, a concentrated, one-pointed meditation. In other words, you shouldn't do heavy meditation, really intense, shutting your mind onto one point, until you know which point to shut it down on. This is so important. If you take your ignorance and become concentrated on it, you will become more magnificently ignorant. That's really very important, as there's a lot to learn. So if you don't remember anything else, I think this is one of the most important things to remember. That... Uh, he calls it true meditation, the samadhi, the stability, the stable mind practice. It's often called one-pointed meditation. Um, you don't shut your mind onto one point until you know which point to, sh- to shut down, to shut it down on, to focus in on. If you take your ignorance and become concentrated on it, you will become more magnificently ignorant. So stay with mindfulness practice. Stay with loving kindness. Learn as much as you can about you. And uh, don't, don't try to jump into samadhi and deeper states of meditation at the very beginning. As I mentioned, Buddhism is like a school, and it has many courses. They're open to all to take. You don't have to be Buddhist, and you don't have to become Buddhist either. You'll be a better Christian, or Jew, or secularist, or whatever you will, if you study from these courses. Of course, Buddhists should study other courses. The Dalai Lama is always sending his monks off to Christian monasteries and convents, to study how those monks and nuns do this and that. He particularly likes the the Catholic nuns who run hospitals and do other good works. He thinks the Buddhists don't do enough of that, and he likes that very much. So that's the Eightfold Path, and that was Buddha's basic therapy. It was Buddha's basic force for good, his vision for the world, like his education system. What you see the Dalai Lama doing is not promoting Buddhism. He may do that for Buddhists, but for others he's not promoting any such thing. He is trying to change the education system to bring more compassion and love into people's minds as part of their education. 
And of course, the root of compassion is realistic wisdom. Knowing what reality is, the more you know what reality is, the more you know you really do depend on others. Let me read that again. The more you know what reality is, the more you know you really do depend on others. And then you know the quality of your life depends to a huge degree on your relationship with others. Therefore, you will find the resources for the inner bliss that enables you to be more loving and compassionate to others. And then you'll be happy. So this is this beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful cycle. The more you know what reality is, the more you know you really do depend upon others. And then you know the quality of your life depends to a huge degree on your relationship with others. Therefore, you will find the resources for the inner bliss that enables you to be more loving and compassionate to others. And then you'll be happy. So, let's check the time. We've almost used our time up. So, the second half of this chapter, just, which is just about three, more, three, four more pages, is then called Sharing My Consolation Prize. Um, and he's writing about, he says this, he's often asked, where do I myself stand? Am I enlightened? And speaking from there as I tell them all about the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Or am I just wishful thinking, rationalization, living in fantasy land? So that's his next, that's the very last section, and we'll read that tomorrow. Um, I just think this is such a beautiful wrap up. It's such a beautiful way to talk about the Eightfold Path. And I love his language, I love his choice of examples, and, um, and can't wait to read. Uh, what he says under sharing my consolation prize about what his own personal experience is, what it has been and what it is. So that will finish up this book. There's also a great uh, uh, added uh, index on, called Further Reading. He lists so many different good books and then some specific ones on Tibetan, the Tibet series, he calls it, and then a very good index for the book which I always like. Um, so we tomorrow will be our last day. And I'll mention the book is called, and this is backwards, I know, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. And it was written in, I mean, it was published in 2021, and it's by Robert Thurman. And he's he's in the Tibetan tradition, but he is a professor and a teacher and a writer. And um, I think it's applicable to every, this is the essence of the Buddhist teachings. And so it was, uh, this was a gift to me from my great friend, Allison Lewis. And she sent books to me and taken me in all kinds of beautiful directions. So uh, this book is not one that I ordinarily would have picked up because I would have thought, oh, that's Robert Thurman, he's a Tibetan tradition. And I have 
you know, stacks and stacks of books that I want to read that are more focused or written by Theravadan teachers. And I'm so glad that she sent this because I've heard of Robert Thurman and read articles by him, but what a great experience to read this book and see. It doesn't matter the tradition that we're in, doesn't matter. The basic teachings of the Buddha are exactly what we're reading in here. The Four Noble Truths and the, the Fourth Noble Truth being the Eightfold Path. And so he, his, his writing just opens up, is even more expansive. So whatever tradition you've been in, just reading this, I think, helps us increase the range of how we can look at these beautiful uh, topics. So tomorrow we will read chapter 10. And this book is published by Hay House. So it's, it's a wonderful read. And we've actually been reading. At first I was kind of jumping around in the book, and then I got, uh, I thought, well, let's, let's read more. This, it was too exciting for me not to share it with you. So we have not meditated today, so promise me that you'll all sit and at least spend, I think you can, we can all say, at least spend 10 minutes just being, just practicing mindfulness. And literally, the way it, he teaches it to us is we, you stay with your breath and just count the breath. One inhale, one exhale is a breath. And just count from one to 10 as you breathe. And whenever you see that you've become distracted, it, you will forget where you are, how, how your counting is going. And so when you have, when you forget, uh, just start over again. But that forgetting and catching yourself forgetting is the important part of this practice. So if you've been practicing for quite a while, you may be, uh, you may have already worked with the counting the breath and coming back to the breath and worked with that. But it never hurts to keep that as I think is part of our daily practice. Because some days our mind is uh, pulling us away more than others. And we can begin to see what pulls us away, what pull is pulling at our mind. I'm convinced uh, these days it's just thinking. It's just, just thinking. Just the, letting the mind do what it wants to do. That can be worrying, that can be creating uh, the scenarios that you want or don't want or speculations about all the bad things that could happen if something else happens. So stop it. <laughs> it just is, as Bob Newhart said in that his famous, uh, one of his famous comedy routines. So just stop it. So uh, we have to learn not to pay so much attention to what our mind wants to do, which is just think all the time. So practice. Spend time outside in nature if you can, even though it's cold here. Um, if you find sun, get some sun and uh, do something. Think of yourself. Think of what he talks about, that uh, becoming, becoming a Buddha is just becoming someone who's able to love everyone and every being and everything. So we're all we're all on that path. We just haven't figured out some of the finer points of it, right? 
So think about others. Think about what is true happiness. And uh, I'll be with you tomorrow. And I think we'll have time to sit a little bit when we finish the book. So thank you so much for being with me. It's been a it's a it's been wonderful reading this book and wonderful having you all here. So we're going to keep going. See you tomorrow. And may everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all living beings in this world, in our house, in our yard, all living beings everywhere throughout this world and throughout the universe.